Hi everyone, welcome to the From the Hack podcast for week 5 of the 2018-2019 curling season. It was a busy early season weekend and we'll catch you up on all the action and news from the past week. Our guests include Kirk Myers, fresh off of his victory in the mixed doubles event at the inaugural Curling World Cup event in China. We talked to reigning world junior champion Tyler Tardy, who won a World Curling Tour event in Maple Ridge, BC on the weekend, which included stealing an 8-ender during the event. Jill Officer joins us after the announcement that she will serve as an assistant coach for Team North America at the Continental Cup in Las Vegas. Jonathan Brazo, who covers curling for Sportsnet.ca, joins us to share his thoughts on the early part of the curling season. And we have interviews with Peter Gallant, the new coach for Team Tiranzoni, and Graham Thompson, the performance director for British and Scottish curling. All that more this week, but first, Canadian musician and non-curler extraordinaire Jimmy Reed plays us into the podcast. So before we get started, if you've ever wondered how they get those nice graphics into the ice at Grand Slams, at the World Championships, and at Nationals in Canada and the U.S., well, the answer is provided by Jedi's, whose in-ice graphics from Easy and Textile logos to the world-famous Jedi's Full House product are great ways for clubs to enhance the appearance of their ice and to generate much-needed additional sponsorship revenues. Easy and Textile logos are the industry standard for high-quality logos and they're a snap to install. Meanwhile, Jedi's customizable Full Houses are a relatively new way for clubs to grow sponsorship revenues by offering maximum brand recognition to those sponsors. No one can match Jedi's design services, quick turnaround times, and product quality, which is why Jedi's products are valued by major organizations such as Curling Canada, the World Curling Federation, USA Curling, and Sportsnet, who trust Jedi's to provide the products they require for their high-profile events. Jedi's. They bring ice to life. Arnold Ashton's passion for curling, along with his natural propensity to explore new ways to better the game, led him to a whole new world of product design. As a result, all Ashton Curling Supplies products are designed with the curler in mind. Ashton's patented ultralight RDS technology makes it possible to change and customize their slider with any combination of sliding discs. With equal resistance on all sides, the circular design that guarantees a straight slide. These circles have also been designed larger and with stabilizing bars from the outer unit sole to produce the most stable straight sliding shoe the world has ever seen. Go to www.asham.com for brooms, apparel, and revolutionary designed footwear. And if you're considering buying new curling shoes, you must consider the rotator sole. It's the sole of the future. From the Hacks recap of Week 5, the 2018-2019 curling season is powered by Curling Zone, your premier source of curling results from around the world. Look for them at www.curlingzone.com. The first leg of the inaugural Curling World Cup took place last week in Suzhou, China, and the Canadian team certainly made a terrific first impression in this new series. Team Homan continued where they left off last season. They won the Champions Cup, the final event of last season, and started this season by winning the first leg of the Curling World Cup while losing only one game all week and defeating the reigning Olympic champions, Team Hasselberg of Sweden, 7-3 in the final. Team Kui followed a similar script in the men's event in Suzhou, losing only one game all week to reach the final, where they defeated Team Wallstad of Norway 6-5. Not to be outdone, the mixed doubles team of Laura Walker and Kirk Myers, the reigning Canadian champions, also lost but one game in the round robin, and went on to defeat Sarah Anderson and Corey Dropkin of the US 7-3 in the final. Kirk Myers joined from the hack to talk about his team's victory in Suzhou, and to discuss the first ever Curling World Cup event. 
Kirk, I guess my first question might be easy for you to answer in the twilight of your career with a little bit more perspective, but I'm wondering if you can share what it meant for you to be part of the team that won the first ever curling World Cup title of any kind. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I think uh, that, w- that was a little bit of a driver for, for me anyways, going into that final and really wanting to win it because, um, like, like you said, it's the first, first one ever. And um, I don't think, like you said, many people realize what they're going through and what they're accomplishing when they're in the career. So, um, but I think in about 10, 15 years time, that'll be something I look on, look back on. That's really, really special. I know um, I've came, you know, after our, our world junior run back in 2011 and, and even our briar a few years ago, I look back on that and realize how cool that is. Um, so, so every time I get those kind of opportunities now, when I'm in them, I try to really take advantage of them because I know as, uh, as I get older, I'll look back on those things and they're pretty special. And to be the first ever curling World Cup uh, winner with Laura, um, that's going to be pretty neat, to, something we'll remember forever. Now, the finals seemed to turn in your favor when you stole three points coming out of the fourth end break. Can you tell our audience a little bit about that end and whether you felt the momentum switch to your side from then on? Yeah, absolutely. That was that was a turning point uh, early in the game. Uh, quite frankly, Corey and Sarah were all over us. They were making everything. And and, and uh, Laura and I have, have had a lot of experience in our life already, and, and we just kept telling ourselves, stay in it. Just just hang in there. We'll get our chance as the game progresses. And uh, And I'm proud of the way we just hung in there. We just kind of kept getting our point when we had hammer and just kind of keep holding our own, holding our own. And then we had that opportunity in the, in the fifth end, like you say there to put us some real big pressure on Sarah on her last one. And, and Laura made a pistol and, uh, and then that was the break we needed. And then as soon as you got that, totally the momentum changed. Um, we got up a couple points. It seems when you get up a couple points on that ice, it's really hard to make precision shots to get back in it. And uh, so when we got those points, we knew we were sitting, sitting ourselves good and that momentum totally changed in our favor. So uh, from there, we just kind of wrote it out. Seeing as how you played a double round robin, did you use the first game against the other teams in your pool to scout them a little bit and perhaps adjust your strategy going into the second games against each team? Or is mixed doubles too much of a race to the forefoot to focus too much on different strategies heading into games? Right. Yeah. I, you know, we, we did discuss it a little bit. I think, like you said, the men's and women's may have had a better chance to, to use some of those scouting scoutings in the first games, you know, maybe what, what turn does the skip want to throw? What shot does the skip want to throw more? Um, but like you say, mixed doubles is more, you race to the button, whoever makes the big shot in each end um, usually gets a few points, you know? So um, there was a little bit of that talk we had before the game with Nolan about maybe if we had a choice of, of what shot to leave them, maybe we choose that, that shot, but at the end of the day, like you said, they're just, it's really tough to dictate where the play is going to happen, especially in mixed doubles when both teams can really pick whichever, whichever turn they want. And then, uh, you, like you said, race to the button. So we didn't, we didn't uh, spend too much time on that, but it was certainly a part of our discussions a little bit because we just, you know, we played them a couple days earlier and we watched maybe some of their weaknesses or some of their strengths. So. One of the rules that got a lot of attention at the Curling World Cup event was that teams had time limits for each end as opposed to the entire game. Did it take some time for you and Laura to adjust to that change, and did you ever feel rushed at certain times during the competition? Uh, you know, going into it, uh, Laura and I were talking about it. We, we, we weren't fans of it. We go, this is crazy. Um, if, we, if we happen to bank time, we should be able to use it later in the game. And that was kind of our notion going into it, into it to be quite honest. And, and we weren't sure how much time we are going to have, so we were a little nervous because um, we were like, oh, man, we may run out of time every end. We, you know, we just don't know because uh, we've never done it before. But once we got in there and started playing, we never even got close to using all our time. Um, what we found is we, we were making quicker decisions and just letting the game flow better. 
and just going and, and curling and making shots, not getting caught up in the strategy of it, which really helped us. So as the second or third game went on, we never were in time trouble. And it seemed that we had a way better flow with, you know, knowing that we had to keep the, to keep the ball rolling every end. So now at the end of that weekend, um, I think Laura would say the same thing. We actually quite enjoyed it. Um, it it kind of kept the game, kept the pace of the game going no matter what for both teams. And, and then what it did was kept our flow going too. So um, after playing it for a weekend, we're, we're big fans of it. And I would not be against uh, curling moving that way in the future, that's for sure. The Curling World Cup is one of the few curling events where the men's, women's, and mixed doubles events run concurrently. Was it strange being on the ice at the same time as games in other events? You, you know, it was the neat part was when you were out there playing with another Team Canada team. Like I said, going into this, one of the cool things was we were part of a bigger Team Canada. And so it was cool when, when we were playing again, or playing on one sheet and then the Cooey teams playing on the other sheet and, and Flash and, and Banner saying good shot or whatever. That, that's a pretty fun, fun experience. So that's something I'll um i'll remember for a long time but the only other thing i noticed was uh, mixed doubles is usually a lot quieter on the ice so laura and i have always only played with you know the mixed doubles uh, teams on the ice but now when you got a men's and women's teams out there screaming and yelling too um, our communication was a little bit more uh, tough to, to get through so um, it was definitely something we had to adjust to a little bit wasn't significant but that was the big one is just uh, finding ways to be louder in our communication where we wouldn't have to have done that in the past you just provided me with a good segue to my next question. How did you enjoy being on a larger Team Canada along with Team Cooey and Team Homan? Yeah, absolutely. That was uh, It was a really neat experience. Uh, um, before, you know, after we come off the ice and we win, um, another, you know, either Cooey or Homan come into the change room and they're cheering us and they're giving us high fives after and, and we do that with them as well. And, and then even on the final day when also we won ours and Homan won theirs and then Cooey goes and wins theirs to kind of be a part of all three of those. And, and then after that, you know, we, we had some celebrations and, and we had a nice dinner and those sort of things. And, and uh, it was really cool to get to meet all of them on a more personal level as well as on a, on a you know, competition level because we're all in the competition together. So it was really neat. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I haven't been a part of something like that since the Canada Games in 2007, which was really cool. And hopefully, uh, you know, I'll get a chance to do it again at another World Cup and, and then hopefully maybe the Olympics down the road too. So um, it was really neat and something uh, that made the World Cup special. Now, Kirk, tell us about the venue a little bit. It seemed to be a beautiful building, but it was often hard to hear the crowds. Was it simply because the building was that big, or were the crowds a little small on location? And also, how were the ice conditions during the event? Yeah, no, in terms of fans, there wasn't a ton of people there, but, but towards the end of the week, people were really catching on, and I think even the men's and women's final had quite a few people there. Ours was early in the morning, so we didn't have a ton, but, uh, um, but so I, I think the atmosphere was pretty good. It was a nice, big, beautiful building. Uh, they closed down the top row, uh, or the top level, so it was just the, the, the middle row, and uh, I think it's going to be a perfect size um, venue for curling in the next couple of years in a city like that. Um, but it was it was quite good actually quite uh, in terms of uh, curling events I've been to that and uh, considering it was in China I think the crowds were quite good overall and then the ice the ice was tough um, Hans did a great job Hans Wuther did a great job all he could he, he showed up uh, and he was saying he showed up when he showed up the building was 35 degrees and he had to have ice made within a week so um, they had to bring in dehumidifiers and more air conditioners and that sort of thing it's not a it's not a I guess an arena design for, for ice. Or, uh, so they had to bring in all this equipment, get the, the temperature of the building down. And then the other problem was outside, it was about 
30, 30 plus degrees and huge humidity. If you'd walk outside and with your glasses on, my glasses would fog up. It feels like it's minus 30 in Saskatchewan when your glasses fog up. So Hans had a lot of work ahead of him, and he did a pretty good job maintaining, taking care of that frost and building ice where, where ice wasn't meant to be built. But uh, it was a little tricky. Um, but at the same time, you know, you, both teams play on the same sheet of ice, and, and sometimes when it's tricky, you use that to your advantage too. So and I think Laura and I did a good job of that. And finally, Kirk, I have a two-part question for you. In the 2018 calendar year, you and Laura Walker have won the Canadian Championship, finished third at Worlds, and won the inaugural Curling World Cup event. What makes you and Laura such a good team? And the second part of my question is, have you and Laura started a committee to find Jeff Walker in you mixed doubles partner? <laughs> you know, we haven't. I, uh, uh, I I haven't been a part of finding Jeff a new partner. I, I just hope he doesn't get any ideas and coming back because uh, um, I don't think he can ever stand in the way of love. So um, I think once he decides he's coming back, I might be on the outside looking in. So that's a good idea. We should find him a, a new partner. But uh, my brother's actually getting married in January and there's a, a uh, nice mixed doubles feel in, in Banff that Johnny Moe was putting on there. So um, I think Laura and Jeff are going to play in that one. So maybe they'll get the, their fill of each other there. So um, I don't have to worry about losing my spot. But <laughs> in terms of what makes us good teammates, I, I, we, we really just hung our hat on, you know, just going out there, um, being honest and open about what we're doing, not worrying about what we say to each other, knowing that what we say to each other is just try to help each other, build each other up um, and just being honest about it too, because not everything's fluffy and great and awesome. Sometimes you just got to be honest with what's going on. And I think we do a good job of that. And, and then the other side of it, uh, I think we have good, uh, good positions. Laura's, Laura's great at, at making the big shot. Um, I seem to be doing a good job of, of getting everything in there, getting everything set up right for us to take advantage of the big shots. And uh, we, we come out there with high intensity. I think we're just having fun. And uh, we've always often said that with curling is when you're not having fun anymore, you're not going to win many games and, and uh, winning's fun. We're doing a lot of winning, which is nice, but we're going out there every game. We're enjoying it. We're enjoying the hour and a half playing a mixed doubles game. And uh, when you do that, it seems you find that extra gear in curling. You get that little, little extra focus needed to be successful. So I think those are kind of the, the big things for us right now that hopefully we can keep going for a few years. There was plenty of elite curling action elsewhere on the weekend. In Saskatoon, Darcy Robertson and her team from Winnipeg won their second title of the young season with a 5-2 win over Team Yoshimura of Japan in the final of the Colonial Square Classic. Another team from Manitoba won their second title of the season as Team Anderson defeated Team Watling of Winnipeg 6-3 in the final, avenging their only loss of the round robin. At the King Cashpeel in Maple Ridge, B.C., Corinne Brown and her team from Kamloops defeated Team Gushalaka of New Westminster 6-4 in the women's final, while in the men's event, it was reigning world junior champion Tyler Tardy and his revamped lineup defeating Team Barry of Vancouver 6-2 in the final. Tyler Tardy joined from the hack to discuss his team's victory in Maple Ridge and also to discuss a unique feat that his team accomplished in one of the round-robin games. Tyler, I want to start by taking you back to the final at the King Cashpeel in Maple Ridge on the weekend where you broke open a tight 2-2 game by scoring a four-ender in the seventh end of the final. Can you tell our audience a little bit about the end that broke that game open? We were pretty patient to get an opportunity, and I guess it just came later in the game in the seventh. And, um, yeah, we they had a couple of small misses, and we capitalized the best we could on it and didn't miss a whole lot and got a little fortunate. But, uh, yeah, it kind of broke the game open with with uh, that opportunity that we that we took. Earlier in the competition, your team stole an eight-ender, not something that happens very often in the sport of curling, especially at the elite level. When did you start getting a sense during that end that you might have a chance at an eight-ender? Yeah, to be honest, the first couple shots, I would have never even 
guess that would have happened. Um, the start of the game, the other team, they already knew that they were out of playoff contention, so they're just trying to have some fun and said we'll just draw draw and play no hits. And, uh, yeah, but that that's kind of how most of it happened. When we had about four rocks in the house, the other skip turns us and says that uh, the other team, or the rest of their team, wanted to just throw draws, and then they're like, he says, uh, but they're not the one that's going to have to draw against eight, so I guess he kind of called it early. He was the first one to say anything about that, and then <laughs> there it happened. Now, early in the event, you lost to a team that included your brother Jordan. Uh, did he chirp you a little until you got him back in the, the semifinals when you beat his team to make it to the final? No, I think both teams have a lot of respect for each other, in my opinion. Um, they're they're a great team, and I think we're a good team ourselves. So, yeah, we have a lot of respect for each other, and there's no really, like, um, bugging each other for winning or anything. It's, it's all mutual respect, and... Um, yeah, I, I genuinely think they're going to be in the top of BC at the end of the season. And, yeah, it'll be fun to see how both of our teams grow throughout uh, the rest of the year. Speaking of your brother Jordan, he aged out of juniors at the end of last season, and I noticed that a familiar face has joined your team, Matthew Hall, whom you beat in the final of the Canadian Juniors back in 2017 when he represented Ontario. How did that new partnership come about, and are you simply playing the World Curling Tour together, or will you also be playing together in juniors this season? He actually is eligible for juniors. Uh, not, not a whole p- bunch of people know that he is age eligible for juniors. So the whole team right now that just won the event is uh, eligible for juniors for one more year. So, um, yeah, he actually contacted us at the end of last season and said he's willing to move out here to play with us in juniors, and our eyes all widened for that. We have a lot of respect for Matt, and, um, yeah, we were really excited when he said that, and, uh, we knew he had the experience and all the shots needed to be an elite junior team. So, yeah, it wasn't much to make that decision to let him on the team. And finally, Tyler, Matt played at second during the event in uh, Maple Ridge. Is that the plan moving forward with uh, Sterling Middleton playing a third and Matt at second? Or will you be switching things up during the season to see what combination might work best for everyone? Yeah, we might play around with it later on in the season because we know Matt has quite a lot of experience as a skip, but we also know that he was on a pretty successful junior team back in Stratford with Doug Key as second, so we know he has the shots for second as well. But yeah, he's got the experience, and even though he's skipped for most of his life, he's a pretty darn good sweeper, so uh, yeah, he's an asset all around the board. The other event that took place last weekend was the popular Shorty Jenkins Classic in Cornwall that includes deep fields in both a men's and women's event. The men's event came down to a battle between Team Jacobs of Sault Ste. Marie and Team Epping of Toronto, with Team Epping winning 5-2. In the women's event, Isabella Vrana and her young team from Sweden defeated Holly Duncan and her team from Toronto 5-4 in an extra end. Jonathan Brazo of Sportsnet was in Cornwall and joined us to discuss both the men's and women's finals at the Shorty Jenkins and also to discuss some of the early stories on the World Curling Tour this season. Jonathan, you were at the Shorty Jenkins Classic in Cornwall on the weekend where the men's final seemed to turn into a heavyweight tilt matching Team Jacobs and Team Epping. Yeah, it was a heavyweight tilt between two teams that were entered the final undefeated. Jacobs, the first event of the year, just came out flying, jumping out of the gate. And Epping, too, they had a great start last week at Stu Sells Oakville Tanker, reaching the semifinals. So no surprise that they came out here again doing very strong. And in the final, you could 
probably tell that it would have to come down to one person making a mistake and for the other one to jump up on the opportunity. And Epping sure did that because right off the bat, Jacob starts with hammer but gives up a steal. And then in the third end, Jacobs has the draw facing two, comes up short, and they have to give up two more points. And really that three-zip hole kind of held on through then there as you had singles going back and forth and eight bend just couldn't find a way to pull it off and yeah the team epping fresh well kind of fresh for epping having that new front end there with craig savile brent lang who as we know they played together for many many years on team glenn howard won just about everything and you know what they're gelling together quite well there that team for the casual curling fan, the women's final at the Shorty Jenkins may have lacked in name recognition, but those were two solid teams competing for the championship, with Team Duncan representing Ontario at the Scotties last season, and Team Verona being one of the top junior teams in the world the past few seasons. How did the women's final play out? Yeah, that was definitely an unexpected final there. You may have think defending champ Jamie Sinclair would have made the final, or Savannah Tiranzoni. But no, we had Rana versus Duncan there, and they put on quite the show, going back and forth, coming down to the wire, and extra end there for Rana to not only get the win, but get her first ever world curling to her title, which I imagine will be the first of many. I want to follow up on Team Verona for a moment. Uh, some people might think that Team Hasselberg, the reigning Olympic champions, are the only elite women's team from Sweden. But Team Verona is a very talented team that I think it's safe to say will be making some noise at the Grand Slam sooner than later. For sure, because I think that they are the real deal. Last week I saw them at the Sioux Cells Oakville tanker. They made the semifinals there where ran into Team Tiranzoni. Then this weekend, they were just out there... And they just ran with things. They, they pretty much controlled the event, so it seemed. And, yeah, I recall a few years ago when I was at one of the Oakville events there, and the final came down to Team Rana versus Team Hasselborg, and I was chatting with Victor Schell, who's Nicodine's former lead there, and he was saying, don't keep an eye on Team Hasselborg. Watch out for Team Rana. And that's saying something when, well, you look at what Hasselborg did, going to the Olympics and winning Olympic gold medal. To keep your eye on the other team, that speaks volumes. So I definitely think we'll see them at the Slam sooner than later. I mean, for sure we'll see them at the Tour Challenge, whether it's Tier 1 or Tier 2 at this point, we'll see. But even then, like winning the Shorty Jenkins Classic is such a huge event that this could even put them in the Champions Cup at the end of the season, which is kind of crazy that we're talking about a late April event when it's still September here. But you know what? For that event, you're kind of thinking – in the back of your head all year that, hey, I have to win something to get there, I have to win something to get there. So big event like this is huge for a team like that. Jonathan, you've been to three of the early season events, and you've been able to watch some of the new teams that were put together for the start of the new Olympic cycle. Let's start with Team Anderson, who got much attention during the offseason because four skips got together and formed a team. There were people that thought it might not work out, but they've now won two of the first three events they've entered together. What impression did uh, Team Anderson make with you? Yeah, that was the thing a lot of people questioned was, like, can they get along? Can you have a team full of skips? But you know what? Their personalities can mesh together. They're not the kinds of people I can see clashing at all because they don't act like that. And seeing them on the ice, there were some times when it was almost like a committee where Kerry would ask the others, well, what shot do you like? Do you like this? And 
that kind of gives you confidence knowing that when you have other skips around there saying, yes, that's a great shot, that you know you're going to throw it good. So I think as long as they just buy into each other's roles and gel like that, they could go places for sure. Another team that received much attention in the offseason was Team Carruthers with their addition of Mike McCune at the third position, although he'll be throwing fourth stones. It's a solid team, but it might take a while for Reed and Mike to adjust to the new on-ice dynamic. How did they look at the Shorty Jenkins? Yeah, so this weekend and for the season, uh, they'll have Mike playing fourth and at vice, and Reed has dropped down to third, but still calling the game. And that's a big change for both of them, so... Yeah, they had a rough go at it this weekend, falling in the tiebreakers. And I imagine that for them, that will take a while to adjust to, because not only do you have Mike just focusing on throwing forth and vice, but he's also now sweeping, which is something he hadn't had to do with his previous team. And I imagine it's going to take a while for them to adjust to that dynamic. But both of them are very good friends off the ice. I don't think you're going to have heads butting at all there, kind of, kind of like what I think with Team Anderson, where it's not that kind of personality going on where you're going to have clashes between them. I think that if they can sort out the growing pains a bit that they're going through, that they too are going to be one of those teams that's at the very top. Another elite team that is going through a transition period is Team Tiranzoni of uh, Switzerland, with Alina Petz and Melanie Barbazat, two former skips, joining the team. Petz, a former world champion skip, is throwing fourth stones for the team, while Silvana Tiranzoni remains at skip, throwing third stones. How did Team Tiranzoni look in the first few events together? Yeah, they went with the Team Carruthers dynamic there, with skip at third, and then the other skip at fourth, and... It's funny because I was talking to Silvana in Oakville, and she said, we've been practicing and hanging out and now playing for the past two months now, but feels like we've been together for the last two years. And they're definitely finding their groove already early, which dangerous for other teams that they'll face, I imagine, because now they've gone back-to-back in, in qualifying for the playoffs. They were the semifinals here. They reached the finals at the Oakville tanker and kind of hit a wall there, though, once they ran to Anderson there and had a bit of troubles, gave up a bunch of steals. But I think they'll they'll definitely, once they find their full groove, they'll be a force to reckon with. And finally, Jonathan, at the start of every season, there seems to be a couple of teams that seemingly, quote-unquote, come out of nowhere or perhaps simply get off to a better start than they have in seasons past. A couple of seasons ago, it was Hasselberg and Scheidegger, and last season it was Maud of Scotland and Chen Min Kim's team out of Korea. Early in this new season, two teams that have done better than might have been expected are Team Schwaller of Switzerland on the men's side and Team Yoshimura of Japan on the women's side. Did you get a sense from watching those two teams that they may have staying power throughout the season, and have you seen any other teams that you think might surprise the curling community along the way? Yeah, I'll first address the teams you talked about. And Schwaller, I I haven't seen too much of them in the past, so I'm kind of hesitant to label them as kind of the breakout team just yet. But they did play quite well at the Sioux Cells Oakville Tanker. That's a huge win. Again, who knows, at the end of the year, we may see them in Champions Cup there. And, yeah, I definitely would like to see a bit more of them before I slap that label on them. But... On the women's side, you mentioned Team Yoshimura, and their experience team, they are actually Team Ogasawara, if you remember that team, just now the fifth is in the line of skipping, and 
Yeah, they've done pretty well at the two Oakville events I saw them, and I think they only lost one game altogether, in fact, and they'll be keep on, on going on tour there, so I imagine they'll continue to keep making noise as well. Um, in terms of other teams to kind of keep an eye on, I know it's super early, and I've only really seen a handful of teams, but Team Harrison already within two weeks has impressed me because, again, there's three players there, former Team Flaxy, bringing in a new skip. Not sure how that sort of thing will mesh, but so far they've qualified in both of those events. So they'll probably either be a top team in the Tier 2 at the Tier Challenge or you never know, they might squeak in for Tier 1 there. So for sure we'll see them making some noise as well, I imagine, in the next couple months. In other curling news, it was announced on Monday that all of the reigning world and Olympic curling champions will be under one roof for the 2019 World Financial Group Continental Cup January 17th to the 20th at Orleans Arena in Las Vegas. Team World will have a European flavor this time around, with Team Adine and Team Hasselberg of Sweden being joined by Team Moet and Team Muirhead of Scotland, as well as Team Tiranzoni and Team De Cruz of Switzerland. Coaching the world team will be Frederick Lindbergh of Sweden, assisted by Christopher Schwa of Norway and David Murdoch of Scotland, who will serve as team captain. North America will be represented by Team Schuster and Team Sinclair of the U.S., who will be joined by Team Homan, Team Jennifer Jones, Team Gushu, and Team Cooey of Canada. Team North America will be coached by Jeff Stoughton and his assistant, Jill Officer. Pete Fenson of the U.S. will serve as captain. Jill Officer joined from the hack to discuss the Continental Cup and being asked to serve as an assistant coach for Team North America. Jill, it was announced on Monday that you will serve as the assistant coach to Jeff Stoughton at the 2019 Continental Cup for Team North America. How excited are you to be returning to an event where you've had so much success in the past, although it will be in a different role this time around? Well, the Continental Cup has always been one of my favorite events to attend just for the pure social aspect and the cheering on that we do as part of a greater team. And it's just got a a whole different feel to it and a whole different vibe. And so I'm looking forward to being there and uh, leading the charge on the uh, the bench in terms of some cheerleading and uh, to just kind of provide whatever support I can. You played in eight Continental Cups in your career, including all three previous times it was held in Vegas. I can appreciate that the week starts fairly laid back, but is it fair to say that the competitive juices start flowing when you get deep into the weekend and the end is near? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, these are the top teams from around the world and from North America, and we're all, uh, you know, everyone's top teams because, you know, we're competitive and, you know, we put a lot of time and effort into the sport, and so it's nice to kind of play in an environment like that where it's a little more relaxed, but at the same time, you're playing for a bigger team, and so when it gets down to the crunch, you don't want to let anybody down, like not just your your four team members, but, you know, the rest of uh, Team North America or Team World, so uh, it certainly does get that way when it gets down to the crunch, but that's part of the beauty of the Continental Cup, and it's part of the beauty for, for the fans to see that engagement between uh, teams that they don't normally see engagement from, like Jennifer Jones, Rachel Homan, or, you know, uh, that type of thing. So uh, it, it certainly, when it comes down to the crunch, it's uh, everyone wants to win. And finally, Joel, there's going to be two stacked teams that will be going head-to-head in Vegas next January. It's got to be fun approaching your first assistant coaching gig at an event like this, knowing that you've got Team Cooey, Team Gushu, Team Schuster, Team Jennifer Jones, Team Homan, and Team Sinclair on your side. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that the 
talent is deep on the team and, uh, you know, we're fortunate here in, in Canada and even North America that we have a great depth in terms of our team. So we're pretty fortunate that most of the teams that we send, we have a really good chance. And, yeah, I mean, these are all teams that have played on the international stage in the last couple of years and uh, and know all the teams from Team World uh, quite well. And, uh, yeah, I, I think we'll have a good chance at winning. If you're looking to buy some new curling equipment, look no further than Hardline Curling. For those who play with the ice pad, they know it's the best curling brush. Whether it's the U.S. Olympic gold medalist Team Schuster, or Women's Olympic gold medalist Sweden's Team Hasselberg, and their countrymen Team Adin, or how about the top Canadian teams, Team Gushu, Kevin Cooey, Brad Jacobs, Team Carruthers, Kerry Anderson, and Chelsea Carey. The list is endless. And Hardline is not just curling brooms. They offer a full range of curling equipment to get you playing your best, including shoes, apparel, and the Pro Slide Delivery Aid designed by Reed Carruthers. Visit their website at www.hardlinecurling.com and see why the top teams in the world choose Hardline for their equipment needs. A few weeks ago, I connected with Peter Gallant, who served as coach of the silver medal winning Korean team at the 2018 Olympics, and who has now moved on to serve as coach of Switzerland's team Terenzoni. Peter, before looking ahead to your new role this season, I want to take a quick look back very briefly. During the last Olympic cycle, you coached Kim Eun-jung and her team from Korea, who eventually went on to win a silver medal at their home Olympics. Can you perhaps touch on one or two things that you learned about coaching and being based in another country that you will be able to bring forward with you? Uh, I guess the main thing for me was just the amount of travel and getting used to uh, being on the road a lot and um, and trying to make sure that that uh, that doesn't take away from the, the focus of, of what goals we're trying to accomplish. So, um, you know, we're used to just traveling around in Canada prior to that cycle, but, uh, you know, once you're so far away in Korea, everything's on a plane and, uh, and long flights to get to wherever you're going. So... The, the travel and, and uh, how it affects the team and even just to go to, from Korea to Canada to participate in the Grand Slam, I mean, there's, you know, there's days of jet lag there and you're just, uh, uh, you know, trying to prepare a team in the first game of a competition, uh, sometimes that it's challenges. So it's something that you have to be aware of and especially when you're making plans to arrive at a, at a, at a distant location, you have to make sure you're getting there ahead of time to be ready for that jet lag. Now, will you be spending a lot of time in Switzerland with Team Terenzoni? The reason I ask is that I know the team does spend a lot of time in Canada during the curling season. No, I won't be in Switzerland very much. I'll uh, be there for the Swiss Championships, obviously, but they're not till February. So most of the time will be where the team is. It, it is a slightly different arrangement. It's the first year of the cycle. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, like you said, they, they're in Canada for many of their events. Yeah, I'll just be joining them mostly for the events and not spending uh, every day and night and waking hour with the team like I did the, <laughs> the last three years. Now, you're joining a team turn zone that has been overhauled a little bit since last year with the addition of both Alina Petz and Melanie Barbazat to the lineup, who both skipped their own teams last season on the World Curling Tour. What have you and the team been doing in the offseason to ensure that there are not, quote-unquote, too many cooks in the kitchen during this season with so many former skips on the ice for one team at the same time? Well, we have we have had conversations, and I've I've, I've spoken with Savannah at, at length about about the situation, and it is her decision. She was the one that kind of wanted to uh, just take a step back from throwing last stones and uh, and continue to skip the game and, and be in that role. And um, obviously, with Alina's team, uh, I think three members of her team decided they weren't going to curl this winter, so that was an obvious choice was for her to come in and 
and take over last rock um, duties. So uh, as far as Mel's concerned at lead, I think, uh, you know, she's a younger player and uh, and very fit, and, and, and we're looking for her to be an ideal front-end person, you know, for now. She can gain experience um, playing with uh, Sylvana and Alina and Esther for sure. But um, I think, it, you know, there's no reason why it can't work, especially you know, even that the team you spoke of that's all skips. It's just a matter of making sure everybody has a role defined and they know exactly, uh, you know, what, what their position is. And, and uh, you know, the, all that stuff needs to be worked out, though, or it's hard to be successful. You know, the conversations have to take place of, um, you know, how much involvement each person is going to have in the decision making on and off the ice, and otherwise it can just be a mess, as you can understand. But, but we have had those discussions, and I'm sure that uh, as the girls are training in Switzerland, they, you know, we, they're also having those discussions and making sure that uh, each role is clearly defined. I think that's a vital part of it. And finally, Peter, when we spoke last season, you mentioned that your role with Unjun Kim and her team. Uh, was uh, so much more focused uh, on in-game strategy than it was on actual technique. Uh, and now with your new team, one of the knocks against Sylvana is that her teams have done well at Spiels and at Grand Slams, but they've had trouble in bigger events such as Nationals, Worlds, and the Olympics, where her team finished 4-5 and five in Pyeongchang after getting off to a slow start. Is it fair to say that your role with Team Tiranzoni will be different than it was with Team Kim, and that you may have to focus more on helping Sylvana get over that hump, as it were, although this new lineup and Alina's experience as a world champion skip will obviously help with that too? Uh, there's no question the, the role is, is, I think it's totally different. With the Koreans, I liken it to be more of a, it was more of a teaching role. Uh, teaching them uh, processes and, and how to how to determine what shots to play in different situations and, and go through the processes to you know determine the right call and you're right Sylvanas team is more experienced I think every every player always has a few technical issues that can be worked out and you know we'll definitely be addressing those and discussing strategy but the whole approach to the game and the mental side of it and, and um, you know feeling good about yourself and feeling confident I mean those are those are things that need to be discussed all the time and you know whether it's me or a sports psychologist uh, working with the athletes um, everybody's got to be involved in it and I think for a coach who's with them a lot you know it, it is a big part of the game and, and feeling like you're capable of, of winning and, and playing your best at the big moments is, is a big part of being successful so you know without going into too much detail like you know there are obviously conversations taking place around that and uh and just finding ways to prepare each athlete individually and as a team to be able to perform under the pressures in the biggest moments. Uh, yeah, I think I think every player's got to go through that with their coach. Before moving on to our last guest of the week, I wanted to remind everyone that From the Hack is a member of the Curling Podcast Network, and I wanted to encourage you to look up the Two Girls in the Game podcast and the Curling Legends podcast, which are both must-listens for any curling fan. Adam Kingsbury, the former coach of Team Holman, joins the two girls this week, while Don Bartlett, the lead on a great Kevin Martin team, is the latest guest on the Curling Legends podcast. Our final guest this week is Graham Thompson, the performance director for British and Scottish Curling. Thompson joined from the hack earlier this season to discuss a few important lineup changes on some of the top teams from Scotland and what is being done to further develop their various programs, specifically their women's and mixed doubles programs. Graham, I'm going to ask you questions about lineup changes that happened in the offseason on specific teams in a few moments, but I was hoping you could start by providing our audience with some insight into what goes into preparing for this new Olympic cycle for an organization like yours. 
Uh, well, listen, the first thing we have to do is secure funding from our government agency, UK Sport. Um, you know, we got a fourth and fifth at the Olympics there in Pyeongchang, and you know, they were well fought for fourth and fifth, proud of uh, both teams. We came very close to a medal. You know, our agency, UK Sport, wants to see us win medals. So we had some uh, pretty intense dialogue with them. And at the beginning of July, they confirmed that they would uh, be funding us uh, for Beijing. And uh, for us, uh, you know, there's three big medal opportunities now. It's men, women, and mixed doubles. And to us, they're, they're equally the same um, because um, that's, that's what we want to target is medals in Beijing. Um, the other thing that we always had planned is we've got a new centre over here, the National Curling Academy in, in Stirling, which was... Um, which is funded by Stirling Council and uh, a local municipality and uh, also the Sports Scotland, um, which is the government agency up in Scotland. So we've had our first ever pre-season. Um, we started, the players started back, uh, many of them in the 1st of July. So they're actually um, probably about five weeks into an eight-week programme, um, which is uh, totally new. Uh, we've had about um, one-month pre-seasons where we've hired out um, other ice rinks, uh, but now we've got our own dedicated centre. So the bottom line is the two big things we've done is... Uh, we secured funding for the next four years. Uh, we're going to make some uh, targets along that time based on world championships. And we've really shifted the whole um, pre-season training and, and, and commitment we're asking from our players uh, in terms of starting to prepare for uh, Beijing. As mentioned, there were a number of lineup changes among your elite teams during the off-season. But I want to start with one team that did not make any changes, and that is Team Mowat. How impressed were you with Team Mowat's rather quick progression last season? Yeah, it was. It was quick. Yeah, they got a great start. They came to Canada for two weeks and went and uh, won 14 straight and took two titles home uh, in, in Oakville. So that was uh, real good. Um, you know, they, they, they were an interesting combination, you know, um, led by Bruce, um, who'd been very successful, particularly with Bobby Larry, uh, right through the last cycle at various levels, World Juniors, uh, went to University Games. You obviously had Hammy McMullen, um, who'd been playing a lot for Tom Brewster, and Grant Hardy had... Um, the start of the cycle had uh, taken a bit of time out to the university to get that organised. So uh, they came together real quick, you know, um, and they just really got that momentum to start and kept going. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the, the slam win was, was big for them. It was big for us as well as a programme for Scotland to have the first ever slam winners. You know, the year before with Kyle Smith get to the first ever final. And then obviously the World Championships, you know, actually the biggest thing was they were really disappointed with Scotland. Um, because they went toe to toe with um, you know with Nicholas and, and, and Brad Gushu and um, you know I think but for the want of a couple of great shots of Brad Gushu in that uh, semi final then they could have found themselves in the final so um, yeah they've had they've had a big season and uh, the trick now is to try and keep that going and, and obviously, obviously now it's going to be the different people are going to be targeting them they're going to be a scalp where before perhaps they were during that uh, opening season but I think they they realised that. Uh, they've prepared well. They've actually been in since mid-July. We gave them a little bit extra time off because they had a really heavy schedule last year. And, um, yeah, they're, they're ready to go, and, and they'll be representing us at the World Cup in, in, in Beijing in the first leg. And, uh, yeah, I know that they're, 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 they're training hard, and they're, they're wanting to go into year two. You just provided me with a good segue to my next question. How confident are you that Team Mowat will be able to maintain their form from last season and deal with the mental aspects of their rise in the rankings and the fact that they will now have a bigger target on their backs? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a really fair point. It's something that you know, the team is working upon. But, you know, we've, we've, um, you know, we've got some good coaches working with them, including uh, people like David Murdoch, you know, who's, who's had to try and do that same thing, maintain top of the game. And then they've had a really good coach, Alan Anderson, someone. But, you know, we're lucky with the funding we've got and the sports, things like sports psychology, it comes down to the lads themselves. I think they're still hungry. 
you know. Um, I, I, I think they're still a little bit, um, you know, not happy about bronze. Um, so they want to battle back. They want to win the Scottish Championship and, and, and get back there. You know what? And I think going to the Slams, you know, they, 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 they've, they've, you know they're going to be, still be the second season in the, in the Slams. So after being to a final, I think they're still hungry for more there um, and, and, and enjoy that, that, that spectacle on that occasion. So, um, yeah, no, I don't, I don't worry too much about the hunger, but I think they've just got to be aware that now there'll be a scalp rather, you know, rather than people maybe asking, oh, I don't know too much about this team. But, you know, they've, they've got some good experience in there. They've got, you know, remember also, you bet Bruce has played a lot of World Championship. You know, he's played Mixed Doubles World Championship. Uh, they've all played World Championship men. Hammy's played a couple of times. Um, so, you know, it's, it's just, uh, you can't bring maturity in too quickly. You've got to go through some experience you know, they got some really good experiences last year. And I suppose the question is, if they, if they had a couple of tournaments where they didn't go, go too well, then they just got to regroup and uh, refocus. But I'm very confident they'll do that. One of the bigger surprises in the curling community during the offseason was the announcement that Kyle Smith would be dropping to third with Glenn Muirhead taking over as skip of that team. Can you take us into the process that led to that decision? One of the things we did is we talked to the, uh, all the players and then, the, you know, we're asking, we're asking a bit more... Um, commitment going forward over the next cycle and uh, you know some of the guys said listen we've got to have a little bit of a, a different schedule maybe in year one so that, that, that led a little bit to some of the some of the thinking there you know and I think Glenn and Kyle have, have had a chat about it and uh, they see that as the best combination going going forward um, and then it's allowed you know in that combination also Kyle Waddle now is working with Team Patterson um, you know so we've got quite a lot of strength and depth in the men's game so, you know, I think it, it is about finding the best combinations, uh, but also it's just about people, you know, year one of the cycle, I know a number of teams, you know, sometimes take a little bit of a, a little bit of a breather rest-wise, you know, I think Peter de Cruz is doing that. So, um, you know, that's, that, 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 that's part of it. We're, we're grouping together people who are in a similar sort of, you know, year one, this is how we want to approach it, while, you know, maybe for other players, it's right, you want to get straight back into it, you know. So that's influenced a little bit of the makeup of the teams. And then once those teams are decided, yeah, Kyle and Glenn have had a chat about it and they feel that's the strongest lineup, you know, which is ultimately what you've got to do. You've got to put your best best forward and the best combination forward. Now, typically rivalries are good to have in sports and it often makes both teams in that rivalry work harder to get better to stay ahead of the other team. I realize that both Team Mowat and Team Glenn Muirhead will be more focused on winning the slams and other tour events they enter, but ultimately, they will meet in important games back home with spots at the Worlds and other international events on the line. What type of impact do you believe a rivalry between two young, talented teams like that might have on the sport of curling in Scotland? Oh, well, there's three teams. There's three teams there. We see you know, Team Mowat, Team Patterson, and Team, uh, team Muirhead. Hey, rivalries are really important. You know, um, for us, we've got a National Curling Academy where, you know, uh, the vast majority of the teams all train all the time. So sometimes it's about looking over to the sheet and see how, how hard they're training. Or just, uh, you know, it's that comparison. You know, they've come back from a tournament and they've done better and you've not done so well. So it's a little bit in your face there uh, and how you react to that. So it's something, um, it's something that we encourage to an extent. But we also, we have a slight situation where we're an overall program. And we have to succeed as a program you know, in terms of medals and, and world championships, and you know, annually. So, um, yeah, we, 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 we encourage the, the, the competition, but, you know, we've also got to re- realize that, you know, we've got some coaches working across different teams as well. Uh, so, therefore, they've got to have the, the trust and respect of doing that. 
and the players have got to understand that actually the, the coaches will do that in a very um, respectful way. But ultimately, as, as a programme, we've got to get results across the board. That's men, women and mixed doubles. With Anna Sloan's decision to take a step away from curling this season, what are the expectations within your programme for Eve Muirhead and her team, considering this will be her first season with Jennifer Dodds at third? Do you mostly view this as a year of transition, where the focus will be on Eve uh, making a full recovery from her off-season surgery and uh, making sure that her and Jennifer work on building that ever-important chemistry between Skip and third? Yeah, well, uh, knowing Eve and knowing some of those players, I'm not going to say they're going to serve you Go, go along, you know, just try to try things out. They'll be going hard like any athlete is. But, yeah, you know, we're, it's the start. It, it, it is a big change, you know. Anna and Eve had a, had a fantastic um, fantastic eight, ten years together and all that they achieved right up to Olympic medals. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's a change, you know. Um, and, and I think it is about, you know, whenever you make a big change like that, you've got to have a settling in period and see how it goes. So, um, you know, Jen Dodds is, uh, you know, she was uh, part of the Team Fleming last year who won the Scottish Championship and went to the Worlds. And they've been playing Tier 2 Slam as well. So it's a chance for her to push in there, you know, and push on and, and, and be, in a, be in a new environment, uh, although she's tasted some of them already. So, yeah, I think, you know, in the bigger picture, yeah, there's a bit of, quite a bit of change going on there, a bit of transition. But, um, you know, they'll be keen from the moment they start off, which, again, is going to be the World Cup in Beijing to put the best route forward and compete well. Um, but uh, yeah, no, as you say, you know, Anna, Anna and Eve had a fantastic, along with also Vicky, you know, and, and Lauren Gray has been part of that as well at times. So it, it is a big change for for, for certainly Eve and for Vicky and potentially Lauren. But um, you know, things things move on and, and new things evolve, and we're very confident about. Uh, Jane Dodds and Vicky Wright. Graham, we're now in an era where the Canadian women's are as deep as they've been traditionally. The Americans will start the season with two women's teams ranking the top 10. The Swiss always have a strong women's contingent. And the Swedes have the reigning women's Olympic champions and another team that has been dominant at the junior level for the past couple of seasons. What's the current long-term outlook for your women's division outside of Team Muirhead? Are you expecting perhaps Sophie Jackson and her team, who've had success at the junior level, to make their way up the rankings this season and throughout uh, this uh, new Olympic cycle? Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you. Spot on there. Um, you know, um, Sophie, Sophie's got a team. You know, they won a World Junior Silver Medal a couple of years ago. They, they're actually, you know, have got a big start. They're going to both Oakville, um, Oakville events, which is really you know, for us to, 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 to give them an opportunity to go out there and put themselves on the on on, on the big well, we're trying to get them a ladies schedule in effect. And um, yeah, we see we see a potential a lot of growth in them across the next cycle. Um, they're also they're, they're targeting the um, Winter University Games, which is you know we'll be selecting that team in the next uh, six weeks. Uh, that's via application process. So um, yeah, they, they've they've um, They've, they've come a long way in the last two seasons. Um, they, they're sticking together. They're all still in education, and that's really important to us to make sure that they can um, finish and get a good education, um, regardless of where they go on to in the rest of their curling career. But, um, yeah, we, we, we want to see Sophie Jackson's team move move forward, and we, we, we're giving them teams that, you know, they, they've got an okay world ranking, but it's um, it gets you into most European tournaments. But, you know, we'd love to see them push, push further into um, other Canadian tournaments. Uh, and um, you know we, we we do we want to we want to give them more exposure um, to try and accelerate their development. Bruce Mowat and uh, Gina Aitken have represented Scotland at several mixed doubles events over the past few years, including at four worlds. 
Bruce has announced that he will not be playing mixed doubles this season. Will you be opening the door to some of your established men's and women's players to compete for a spot at the mixed doubles worlds, or will you focus on developing mixed doubles, quote-unquote, specialists, the way several other European and Asian countries have done it? Yeah, we, we, we're just finalizing our mixed doubles selections. Um, we, we, we're going to get people, as you say, not to be specialists, uh, in a season to focus on one. Uh, discipline, whether it be uh, men or mixed doubles or women in mixed doubles, uh, mainly because the schedule is getting so crowded, Frank, um, and it's it, it, it's quite difficult to, to, to keep swapping over. And I know I know that you know Johnny Morris and uh, you know did a great job um, uh, last last year the, the, at the Olympics um, with his partner. Um, and uh, I, I think mixed doubles with the rest of sport is is ever evolving. Really pleased to see the WCF have got uh, mixed doubles as part of the World Cup. Uh, I, I do speculate as to when the slams will bring mixed doubles in because I think then it'll give it even further credibility. And and so we were basically getting our our, our program set up. Um, we'll we'll evaluate from season to season the best methodology uh, of how we eventually end up with the best possible um, best possible team for Beijing. But on saying that, we've got to qualify. You know, we were we, we were hurting a bit. We were the ninth um, qualified team. Obviously, only eight got to go. We, we just missed out. Bruce and Gina. Um, you know, had a great fourth in the first qualifying event in, in the 20, um, 2016, um, sorry, 2015, and then unfortunately didn't, um, they just, uh, they had a tough quarterfinal uh, last 16 draw uh, versus uh, Courtney and Carruthers, um, and we missed out by a single point in qualification. So actually, I think there's two jobs to be done here. You know, as I say, it's difficult to combine schedules, uh, men and, and the mixed doubles, the women mixed doubles. So we've got to get people to the World Championship to get us actually to the Olympics. And then, obviously, we'll, we'll assess. Um, so that's our approach at the moment, but we'll keep a watching brief. But really, the first job we want to do is to send a clear message, and we have already sent this to our own players, uh, you know, and to our own programme, that mixed doubles is equally important as men and women. And actually, just sitting down with some teams and some coaches, there's an evergreen schedule. You know, you, you, you're probably going to be not, you're probably going to be at three-quarters of a type schedule of men and women, and I, I predict in 18 months, there'll probably be almost the um, same number of weekends, and, and I really do wait to see when, when the slams might take on mixed doubles as well. I think it'd be a great addition. And my last question for you, Graham. In the last cycle, you had a number of Canadian coaches working with your elite teams, including Glenn Howard, Mike Harris, and Ian Tetley. Are you continuing with that approach to start the 2022 Olympic cycle, or will your teams be working mostly with in-house coaches? Oh, we're going through a bit of a transition there on the coaching front. Um, you know, we're... we're very keen to um, uh, you know full full time coaches, um, but you know actually curling's not got a, a host of them who are, who are taking that kind of full time approach to things. So um, I think in this in this first year we, we, we'll uh, potentially tap into um, some consultant coaches from maybe Canada from other parts of the world as well, and also we'll have a contingent of Scottish based coaches. You know at the end of the day, um, you know Scotland's got a, a great tradition and a great knowledge base, and we've always had a you know if you think of the likes. Uh, Russell Keeler and Mike Hay with uh, you know Ronan Barton back in 2010. You got likes of Dave as well, you know, um, you know, and people like Kate Brewster, you know, who's done so much across about 20 years of coaching at various levels. So we're trying to um, we're trying to um, you know keep that going. One of the things, Frank, that we've done, you know, if you, if you watch David Murdoch, maybe it was one of the first um, curlers of his generation where he wasn't necessarily going to had a, had a career or another career to fall straight back into. Um, and therefore, he's come on and been a coach with us. We do see our, our performance program as a source of uh, future coaches. Um, as I say, you know, when there are players, we encourage them to get an education. We encourage them also to not just solely focus on curling. There's got to be a balance, I have to say, uh, so they can actually do some work as well. 
but you're seeing, I think, in the next five, ten years, the rise of those who, you know, solely focused on curling or very, very highly, actually say, I might have finished playing, but actually I want to stay in the sport. How do I do that? And an obvious source of any coaches in any sport is ex-players, and it's definitely one that we want to exploit more of. And then David, you know, David worked real hard with um, teams, the men's teams last year had some good success. So, um, you know, we, 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 we want to have our homegrown, but we want to win, bring in if there's uh, people around the world who can add value as well. And that does it for this week's podcast. Join us next week as we continue our coverage of the 2018-2019 curling season. I'm Frank Rock, and this is From the Hack.